Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4, Acts 4. This is our last message in our series, Common and Courageous, just to kind of bring you up to speed. Uh, Peter and John went to the temple. They healed a man at the temple steps. They began speaking, and the man was walking around. People were amazed, uh, and uh, Peter and John were preaching, and the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish Supreme Court, calls them on the carpet for this, tells them to stop. They don't want them preaching anymore, and then we have this story that takes place. So let's all stand as we take a look at our passage. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Oh, Lord, as we read this passage, it seems every week I'm praying the same prayer. Help us not to see this as something of just yesteryear, but help us to see that you are a God who wants to move in our lives today. Help us not to relegate this passage to something that is uh, void of meaning and void of power. I ask that we might allow your spirit to move freely in our lives and in our midst. Father, we don't want something contrived. We just want a genuine movement of your spirit. And I ask that you would cause this body to just be open to what you want to do in us and through us. It's as simple as that. Would you grant this request, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. You know, it is said of thoroughbred horses that when they face attack from an outside enemy... They face each other and kick out towards their attackers. Kicking the enemy. Donkeys, on the other hand, uh, they do just the opposite. They circle up and face the enemy and use their hind legs to kick each other. I read it on the internet, so it must be true that this takes place. Like thoroughbreds, John and Peter gather together with what probably was the 120. We don't know for sure, but it was a group of of other believers. Remember the 120 in the upper room? They gather together, 
And I think they model for us how to handle adversity. Wherever they met, whoever they met, we know this, they did not isolate themselves. They did not shut their blinds. They did not nurse their wounds. Notice they didn't just, uh, you know, share their feelings. They reported, they prayed, and they stayed on mission. They reported, they prayed, and they stayed on mission. They defined reality when they were reported to this group, our passage says in verse 23. In other words, here's what the officials said. Here is what we said. Here is now what we have to deal with. They were defining reality. And so the rest of the passage is this wonderful prayer in response. And again, like horses, they gathered together. They prayed, and then they stayed on their mission. Donkeys gather with a couple folks, do a little complaining, probably probably throw in a little gossip, gather some allies, never really intending, if it's a conflict, to really get the other side of the story, never really intending to resolve the issue, using excuses like, you know, uh, I'm just not a person who likes to confront I don't like conflict. It's just not in my personality. Whatever the motive, it doesn't matter because what they're doing is contributing to division. That's not what these guys do. That's not what the people do. Verse 24 says they lifted their voices together. Verse 31 says that they gathered together. Horse sense brings unity. Donkey foolishness breeds division. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Instead of launching some diatribe against the Sanhedrin, and they had every right to do that, I suppose, and their unjust demands that they were making upon the disciples, these believers made a choice to look to God in this extremely stressful situation. They lifted their voices together in prayer. Never underestimate the power of God's people getting together to pray, particularly in a tough situation. This wasn't just some, you know, little prayer to get them out of a, you know, get them out of a bind. It's a prayer solidly rooted in the providence of a holy God. They set their sights on the the sovereignty, the lordship, the creative power of God. And these believers were not opting for some, you know, positive thinking, we got the best life ahead. They were not asking God to help them escape. They were not opting for some lame prayer shaded with, you know, kind of a Western world mentality of material blessing or somehow the American dream is a God-given right. None of that. These are hardcore disciples that have already settled that they exist 
for God's glory and God's pleasure and not the other way around. I mean, they just got a cease and desist order from government authorities. But this group understood that they were serving a greater master. I mean, it's really hard to be intimidated, isn't it, when you understand that Christ is your king, that Christ is your ultimate Lord, and he's the creator of the universe. In fact, the word they use for Lord here is the same word used for despot. That word signifies an absolute ruler, and it's usually used in a negative sense, but here, obviously, in a positive sense, because this is a good absolute king. The psalmist says, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he's made. They address that God is sovereign. God is the supreme ruler. Not Pilate. Not Caesar. Not Caiaphas. Not the Sanhedrin. God is the sovereign king. God is the one who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And in Proverbs it says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Is that true in all situations? I mean, I've been in hospital rooms. I've been in living rooms where people have lost loved ones. A parent dies. A child is lost. I've wept with the spouse who's, who's broken from infidelity or, or even abuse. What do you say to a family who's lost their home in a fire? What words can possibly comfort a spouse who lost their loved one in a car wreck? Or they've seen their spouse take their last breath because of cancer. What do you say to that? What could I have said when I talked to a man who lost his whole office staff in the Twin Towers of 9-11? Can we have confidence that God is still sovereign? God is in control in these cases? Oh, I know the Sunday school answer. You, yeah, God is good. Yeah. Okay. God is faithful. But where the rubber meets the road, is that really the case? Is it really? I think these, these people took it to a whole other level. Because if, if you question that God is still in control, if we think he maybe doesn't have the capacity, then consider this. He has made the heaven and the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. Checkmate. The late Dr. Edwin Conklin, a former professor of Princeton University, compared, you know, the so-called accident of life. How did all this happen? By some accident? Okay. He compared that to the equivalent of an explosion in a printing shop producing an unabridged dictionary. Or take, for instance, the circulatory system. 
contains some 100,000 miles of pipeline, arteries, veins, and capillaries, which course through the body, providing the cells with food and oxygen and removing waste. Does anyone likewise imagine that the pipeline system beneath the city of San Francisco fashioned itself strictly by chance? That's absurd. God's the creator. God has made this. But sometimes it's hard to see. In January 1994, an earthquake lasting up to 20 seconds hit the San Fernando Valley region of Los Angeles, California. Cost $20 billion in damages. 60 people died. And much of the city's power was lost because of the quake. Radio, television, transmissions knocked off the air. That night, the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles began to receive some very odd phone calls from panicked citizens who reported a strange sky. They speculated that perhaps the silver cloud above them somehow caused the earthquake. And after some confusion and scratching his head, the director of the observatory realized what was going on. See, when the city lights were made powerless by the earthquake, for the first time ever, many of these people who lived in L.A. looked up and saw a dark sky. That scary, smoky, silver cloud they reported was the Milky Way. And do you realize that now two-thirds of Americans and one-fifth of the world cannot see it. City life isn't the only thing that's blocking people from seeing the works of the Creator. A hard heart can cause people not to recognize what God has made. The psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. W.A. Criswell, the late preacher, told a story of a Russian cosmonaut who went into space. He left the Earth's atmosphere, and when he returned to Earth, somebody in the press asked him if he saw God. The cosmonaut replied, I looked and looked, and I didn't see God. Chriswell said, if he would have stepped out of his spacesuit, he would have seen God. <laughs> Death, pain, and adversity are never a surprise to God. He is always in control. And hostility from government officials, they were not going to deter Peter or John or the rest of these disciples. Their faith in a sovereign God formed a bedrock confidence who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In these verses, here we see the, the people taking the word of the Lord in Psalm 2 and they utter this beautiful prayers as they were kind of paraphrasing and, and it formed their perspective. And they noted the Old Testament psalm was, was actually written by their forefather David but inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
And that psalm says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they, they are personalizing this prayer by applying the nations to the Roman Gentile authorities. The, the people were the religious leaders of, of, of Israel. And the kings of the earth were a reference to probably Herod Antipas and the rulers pointing to Pilate. All these people participated in the death against the anointed one, Jesus Christ. So the reality of the death of Christ is in the mind of these believers. But they recognized that that was a part of God's predestined plan. And certainly for a moment, the disciples were panicked when Jesus died. But then they soon realized that God's got this under his control. God allowed it to be used for his purposes, like Genesis 50, 20 says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I find it rather amusing to hear Christians say, well, I just don't believe in predestination. <laughs> really? That's a curious position to take when Ephesians 1 gives a whole treatise on it, Romans 8 are you going to just cut out portions of the Bible? Or are you going to try to re-explain, to denude the meaning, to fit some man-made theological construct? Is that what you're going to do? See, either of those options don't appeal to me. When we read of God's predetermined plans, his choosing us, human beings do not like those concepts. Why is that? Because it tears away from our self-dependence. We want to take credit for this. But listen, God initiated this deal. We didn't. God's the one that provides everything we need to live the Christian life through the life of Christ in us. That power is not from us. Paul said in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So to say you don't believe in predestination not only denies the biblical record, but it puts you in a position of claiming that you deserve a little credit for what God has done. We are not in control. We are not sovereign. And the fact is, let's just be honest about this, we usually don't have a problem at all with recognizing God's sovereignty whenever we're blessed. Oh, that's pretty cool. Oh, God, thank you. That's awesome. Look how good God is. We'll proclaim that. There's even a little pleasure we might get. We might not say it out loud, but secretly we're thinking, you know, I did deserve that a little bit. I'm doing all right. But when challenges come, when conflict comes, when adversity comes, we're going to bemoan and deny that God is in control. Because God being in control and me having adversity, that just doesn't mesh. I don't know where you got the equation that when Christians are living for God, that means everything's going to go their way because whatever that message was, it's not from the Bible. In fact, some theological strands are so entrenched with human contribution 
They think that when adversity comes, you know why it's there? Because you didn't have enough faith. See, I control what happens to me even by the amount of faith I have. I hate to bust your bubble, but good and godly people die. Good and godly people get cancer. Good and godly people have kids who go south. Good and godly people have adversity. They get sick. Good and godly people can be persecuted for their faith. I talked with a dear friend of mine this week whose Christian daughter was raped coming out of her workplace. Her life, as you can imagine, I mean, fit that within God is sovereign. Her life spiraled, as you can imagine. She didn't feel like she was worth much. And after this event, she lived like that as well. As if it couldn't get any worse, while she was in that downward spiral, she was in a vehicle with her friends and wrecked and broke her neck. She survived. She is walking today. But her father said to me this week, he said, you know, I can remember after all that happened, I said to her, he said, honey, I believe God allowed your accident to get your attention. And she said, daddy, I believe that too. (laughs) He's sovereign. Whether we know the reasons or not, He's still good. He still loves us. And isn't it true of us as parents? We try to shield our kids from the consequences. We try to shield them from all the hardships. And in so doing, we can stunt their growth. God is the perfect parent, and he allows hardship for our own good and for his glory. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. My dear friends, our mission continues no matter what our circumstances, right? No matter what your vocation you know, is, what you get paid for, no matter what your education, your economic level or status, God has called each of us to serve in the kingdom of God. For his glory, to live out and express the gospel as he gives opportunity. We don't need to be on a corner with a bullhorn to do this. We simply need to love well and to love all. And as God gives opportunities, then we share our story. We share the gospel and how it's transformed our lives. And these believers in Acts prayed that God would give them more boldness more opportunity to see God work, more people to hear the gospel, more glory to God. I mean, what they're praying is, Sovereign Lord, you made everything, you spoke through David, you anointed Jesus, now enable us as your servants. It's a great prayer. This was not a prayer for relief. They weren't saying, God, please take these guys away. Give us new leaders. Who hasn't prayed that? Give us new leaders. God may not answer that prayer. They prayed for bravery. Their prayer assumes a a dependence and faith upon God. 
These believers expected to do nothing by themselves and everything rested in the sovereign power of God in the name of Jesus. All the threats, all the conflicts are to drive us on our knees and further dependence. I don't know how many times Jan and I have just prayed. We don't have the answer, but all we know how to do is just seek God. God, you, you, you got to come in here and do something. And I may not have the answer after praying, but at least our hearts are united, our hearts are aligned, and then God can direct us. Yeah, I don't think that when these people were praying for courage, I don't think they were robots. I don't think that they just had zero fear. In fact, I think they probably had some fear. It's a natural human response, particularly in that situation when you picture the government saying, hey, I don't want you doing this, and you know you've got to do it. There's got to be a little fear in there. But I, I don't think courage can really take place without a little fear, right? It's, I think what's taking place here is that they realized their mission was number one. They realized that they were not going to be subject to fear. God gave them courage to overcome their fear. Much argument is given to whether God is using Christians today to heal And if signs and wonders are still taking place, as it says here in verse 30. I'm certainly not going to be one to limit God. Nor do I think that every one of these historical accounts that we read about in Acts are meant for us to replicate exactly as they're talked about here. However, we cannot be guilty of trying to denude the meaning of this book by declaring that because of some dispensation we're now in, God ceases doing miracles. That there's no signs and wonders. I would rather live with the kind of faith that expects God to work and gives him freedom to choose how he works. But I welcome his supernatural activity however he wants to do that. So how can we operate... In the name of the Holy Servant Jesus, and expect no supernatural involvement. I don't get that. You're connected to Christ, and then you're saying, Well, we're in a dispensation where there's going to be no miracles. What? It doesn't make sense. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We can hardly read of supernatural activity that God does without his people praying. And here they were praying. Again, they gathered together. Gathered together to pray. We meet together in life groups to pray. We meet together once a month in Ignite to worship and pray. We meet together every week in a corporate worship service. We pray. But let us not miss how we're praying. Are we praying to expect God to move supernaturally? He may not shake the place, or he may. I'm not going to dictate how God does it, but I'm going to expect him to move. And I believe that when I'm expecting him to move, I'm going to believe him for big things. I want him to move in big ways, not only in my life, but in the church. I've been praying for an expanded facility so that people don't have to sit on concrete steps in our worship service. I've been praying for that. 
The place hasn't shaken yet, but I'm still waiting for God to move. I've also prayed for God to expand our children's ministry. There's been an epidemic of children in our church. We've got to do something about it. We have a great staff, great leadership, wonderful people, and we're looking for more opportunities. And God has laid it in our lap. Canacuck Camps, the wonderful camp in the Branson area, is offering to come to our church and do a week of camp at our church, of camp at our facility, with their staff, with their equipment, quarter million dollars worth of equipment. It's going to be in August. They've done this in churches in the Midwest. They've never done it in Springfield. And they said, we've been, just been waiting for a church to do it in Springfield. They've never done it until now. That was a big answer. That's a big deal. In addition, we've had somebody step up to the plate. We're going to do a VBS. There's another person in our congregation who gave a great proposal to start a children's ministry, helping kids absorb Scripture. God responded with great answers, and I believe that was from his hand. So when our passage says that the place shook, I think it's simply a way for God to let them know, hey, I'm here, I'm listening, I heard you. I love it when God intervenes like that. And I think just like how I detailed, I can see God moving, God listening, God moving. These requests and acts were all aligned for the believers, their prayer requests, to accomplish their mission, their task in the kingdom of God as representatives of Christ. I challenge you to write that on a piece of paper. Can you put down... Why are you on the face of this earth? What does God have you to do? What is your mission? Now, don't give some generalized answer of, you know, give glory to God. I understand. That's good. That's good. It's a good place to start. But make it specific to your gifts, what God wants you to do. And then pray for boldness. Pray that you not operate in fear. Pray that the mission goes on. And may we pray for some and ask God for big faith. Expect God to move. And you're going to know that the Holy Spirit is filling you, controlling you, because he's called you, and you're relying upon him to do his work in and through you, and God does just that. See, the Holy Spirit was filling them for a specific task, for this mission. I don't need to worry. God calls me. I've got insecurities just like you do. I have fears just like you do. But seriously, you get all these things, you know, running through your head, right? Being filled with the Spirit means, all right, I'm going to live with a sense of integrity before God, and I'm going to just rest on him to do his work through me. More of him, less of me, right? More of him, less of me. John Chrysostom, the early church father who came on the scene about 320 years after the life of Christ on the earth, was summoned before the Roman emperor, Arcadius. Arcadius threatened to banish Chrysostom if he didn't stop preaching Christ. It said that Chrysostom responded this way. He said, 
you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. The emperor said, then I will slay you. Chrysostom said, nay, you cannot slay me, for my life is hid with Christ and God. The emperor said, then your treasures will be confiscated. Chrysostom said, that can't be. My treasures are all in heaven, where no one can break in and steal. The emperor said, then I will drive you from men, and you will have no friends. Chrysostom said, you can't do that either. I have a friend in heaven who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Ultimately, Chrysostom was banished to a remote place on the edge of Armenia. All he did from that point was just continue to preach. He didn't listen to the emperor. They then banished him to a place even more remote. And on his way there, Chrysostom died. No threat could break his spirit. No threat could get him off track from the mission that God had given him to his walk of obedience. May we, by the strength of God, stay on our mission in the kingdom of God. May we face adversity with a dogged determination, be it in the midst of persecution, whatever it is, that we're going to continue to obey God, to do the mission that God has called me to. That's what God did in the early church, and that is why it absolutely exploded. Because you had a group of people that just were naive enough to believe that God had used them like that. And they were just going to stay on point. And bam. Yeah, I think that's what God wants to do with us. I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm not going to pretend that I'm some prophet and can predict exactly what the results will be. But don't you believe with me that God wants to do big things? Man. But I want to be able to forge ahead and allow God just to use me as a drink offering poured out completely. Completely.